Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Today I want to talk from Ephesians chapter 4. Let's turn there, Ephesians chapter 4. And if you also want to join, we do have it up on the screens here, but if you're watching online, you have a separate device, you'd like to pull up your YouVersion app. If you're here today and you have the Bible app, the YouVersion app, if you just click open, go down to the right-hand corner, select more. When it pops up, somewhere down the middle, you'll see events. If you click events, um, you should see right at the top, Faith City, Michigan campus. We put all the notes in there for you. You can follow along. You can add your own notes. You can even save it for further reference. So we encourage you to do that. We do whatever we can to help you remember what you hear. But I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4 here. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus. Let's start with verse 14. He says, As a result, we are no longer to be children. What does he say? We are no longer to be what? Children. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, say but, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects, say that with me, all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, verse 16, from whom, I love this, the whole body, that's us, that's you and I, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to proper working of each individual part, look at this, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in what? In love. Now, the Apostle Paul mentions love twice here. I love this idea of speaking the truth in love. And you've heard me probably quote this several times without even giving you, you know, the, the, the address in the Bible. But it's important that when we speak truth, that it's tempered with love. This is one thing that I've noticed that Jesus did, especially in his ministry on earth. Now, I know there were times that, that he got a little bit riled up, but it was usually the religious people who were trying to hold people back from temple worship. People who were being labeled as sinners and tax collectors and those who didn't belong. And Jesus had a real issue with that. Because how many know that Jesus and the kingdom of God, which he preached, is not about us and them. It's about everyone being included. And so we even see this in his life. Now, for a lot of us, we're in the first, you know, we don't live in the first century. We live in the 21st century. So 20 centuries later, we don't quite get that when Jesus sat down and broke bread with sinners, he was saying, I accept you right where you are. That didn't go very well with the religious community. And so the times that we see Jesus get riled up is usually when it's this religious spirit that would hold people back. But I always... I always notice that in his life when he, would, when he would eat with sinners and he would be with people who we would call a sinner, he always said things tempered with love. It's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. That word repentance, metanoia, in the Greek means what? To change our minds. People would change their minds and then in turn that word repentance in the Hebrew means to turn and go a different way. What caused that? His kindness, his love, showing them who they truly were. I love what Bishop Jamie always says. He says, so many times we're calling out the sin in people's lives instead of calling out the sun in people's lives. And so when we're not calling out the sun, we're calling out the sin, the focus is on the sin rather than the sonship. But sonship is what brings you out, drags you out of the sin. Does that make sense? And so it really does matter how we speak and how we talk. So Paul here in this letter to the church in Ephesus He's very adamant about what you believe. He's telling them that they need to be mature in their beliefs, not carried about by, what's he say, every wind of doctrine, not easily tricked by men or deceitful schemes. So he's pretty serious about this, isn't he? You know, I was thinking about a debit card. How many have a debit card? How many love using their debit card? How many have used your debit card too much? <laughs> I remember, though, when debit cards first came out, it was back in, like, the mid-90s. I don't know how many remember this, but it was just a cool idea because, you know, I didn't really... I think I had one small credit card at the time, but then they came up with these debit cards that were connected to your bank account. Now, you had to have money in there, right, in order to use it, but when they first came out, and I don't know why this was, I think maybe with new systems and things like that, for instance, my friends and I, we would go out to eat, 
and we'd have this whole meal. We'd enjoy a couple hours together, and then the bill would come, and we'd go to pay the bill, and I'd give him my debit card. And I would say half the time it seemed like they'd come back, sorry, sir, it's not working. Like there was a real issue with that. And it's not because I didn't have money in my account, right? I mean, you ever done that? It's kind of like swiping your card is like playing the lottery. It's like, come on, big money, be in there, right? I've been there in my young years. But these were times when I literally had money in the bank. And so they would say, well, it's not working. I'm like, well, do you want me to wash dishes? I don't know what to do because there's money in there, but they couldn't access it. And so a lot of times when one of my friend's debit card wouldn't work, maybe mine would or vice versa. So we'd uh, you take care of it and we'd pay each other back, things like that. But it was just such an embarrassing situation to be in. But the thing with those cards is they weren't always working correctly. But I remember the first time that I went through an ATM with my youngest son, Aiden. And so we drove up and, and I'm putting my number in and doing my code and transaction and money comes out and he notices that, right? He's like, oh, he goes, did money just come out of the machine? I'm like, yeah. He goes, so wait a minute. You just put that card in and you get money out? I'm like, well, kind of. He's like, we should come by here every day. I'm like, well, listen, but you have to have money in the account. It's not just like, like there's nothing attached to this. It's just free money. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? And so I remember explaining to him, I'm like, hey, bud, th- this is not just an endless amount of money. Dad has to have money in there. And we begin to understand that you can't just swipe the card every time you want something. But he was like, Dad, isn't that cool? You can just come up here anytime you want and we can get money. But, you know, explaining that to him, I think that doctrine and theology are a lot like the debit card understanding to a kid. If you don't know the truth about how a debit card works, then you can come up with some really crazy way off base ideas about how debit cards work, right? But see, it's the same thing with theology. If you don't have a proper understanding, and we've learned this, that literally moving a comma from one place to another changes a lot. A word translated from the Greek or the Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek into English sometimes can lose meaning, right? And so sometimes one word can change our paradigm on something. It completely changes the meaning of everything. So I think it's important, especially in this day and age, when you can literally get concordances and, and, and you know all these different ways online, lexicons, and you can study. There's really no excuse. If we really want to know what something means, we can dig into it. Because if we don't, we come up with some crazy ideas. All of a sudden, we, I like what, I don't know who exactly said this. He said that, you know, uh, God made us in his image and then we return the favor. We end up making God in our image. And that's something that I don't want to do at Faith City. That, listen, I, I know this, that, you know, even through my, you know, f- few years of ministry and, and life as a Christian, I've had to change things around and realize I was wrong in areas. And, and even when I speak today, maybe I'm off on some things. I do my best. And I know that when I pass on to the eternity and, and I'm with my heavenly father, we're like, oh, okay, that was wrong. And that was wrong. And oh, I got one right. I understand that. But I really think that we can do our best to have a true understanding. And again, I think that the proper lens is Jesus Christ. When we see his life, it can just change everything. So say this with me, doctrine matters. Say it again, doctrine matters. Doctrine is what? It's a belief or a set of beliefs. Think about this, your doctrine, what you believe, some people would even say your theology, what what you believe about God, it determines how you walk, doesn't it? it? It really is your foundation or your springboard for life. It's the lens, if you will, through which we see God We see ourselves and we see others. And as that lens begins to change, have you ever noticed in your life you start to see God a little differently? And hopefully it's in a better light as a father who loves you. Jamie was talking about this last week, how there's been all these different shifts in history. And this, this latest shift has really been to the fatherhood of God, being a father. I mean, it's all through Scripture. Actually, him being a mother is all through the scripture too. Because how many know God is a spirit? He's not male or female. But he has the attributes of both. And so there's that nurturing side. And there's, that, there's also that side that disciplines. But how many know that proper discipline is training you for your future, not punishing you for your past? There's a big difference in how we see discipline. And so it's always looking out for how can I, how can I move things and shift things around in your life so that you have a better life in the long run? Because it's not about punishing you just because I want to punish. It's 
It's, it's re-navigating, it's re-pointing you in a direction so you're going the direction that's best for your life. And that's how God really handles discipline with us. So I was thinking about this idea, actually Pastor Jake Stringer, how many are familiar with him? He'll be here in three weeks, by the way, November 8th. So um, I don't know if he's going to play with the band or not. He's a great guitarist, but he's just a great brother in Christ and just really built a relationship over the last two or three years, somewhere in there. He'll be here. But he made this statement last time he was here about indoctrination. That's really where we get that word doctrine. We get it from indoctrination, or the other way around, indoctrination. But I remember when he was here, he was saying that everybody is indoctrinated. Whether you are Christian or atheist, whether you are Democrat or Republican, whether you are Muslim or Hindu, we all have sets of beliefs that were instilled in us at some point as we were growing up. Now, some of those things we change, right? But other things we hold on to, and so that's indoctrination. It's not that indoctrination is necessarily a bad thing. It's just a system of beliefs that we've been trained in. Does that make sense? And so we've all been indoctrinated in some way, but these ideas of doctrine are important. The Apostle Paul, he gives us awesome insight about proper biblical teaching in the verses that we just read. Look, look again here, Ephesians 4 and 14. He says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but the, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects. I love this. Thanks, Apostle Paul. Into him who is the head, even Christ. See, one of the most important things that happens when we get sound doctrine, when, when we have a good foundation in our doctrine, is the ability to recognize false doctrine. Now, see, a lot of times when we read this verse, the first thing we go to is, oh, false teachers everywhere, be careful, be careful, be careful. But do you notice that he also says to be open to different ways of thinking? And so what we do is we automatically say, anything that's new or a new revelation or new to us, it's funny, like, uh, there's been different movements that have happened over the last, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, really hundreds, thousands of years since the church began and whenever we feel, like especially, you know, let's say in the last hundred years, like that's a new thing, it's funny, you can trace it all the way back to the early church fathers. It's just something that was lost. It was something that was forgotten. And so we're so quick to go, I haven't heard it before, so it must be false. Well, maybe dig into it a little bit, and then you realize, whoa, I've actually been believing something false over what was true and believed by the early church fathers for the first 300 years of the church. And that's why it's important to understand doctrine. And the thing is, when we have a sound doctrine, we can't be tricked or deceived, even if it sounds good to religious ears. And by the way, do you see that all of this is summed up in one person, the person of Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the lens for our doctrine and our beliefs. I heard a, a pastor, he was, he was telling a story of this church that had a doctrine that every member of the church, listen to this, every member of the church became demon-possessed from Sunday to Sunday. So even if you were delivered on a Sunday, throughout the week somehow you got demon-possessed again, and then that following Sunday, they would have every single service, they had a deliverance time at the end of service. I'm not making this up. There was screaming and yelling and convulsing and even vomiting. Man, I'm glad I'm not the cleaning person of that church. But all this would go on, and it was just weird stuff, Right? So that, that is blatant bad doctrine. How many can just agree with me on that? But what of the subtle bad doctrine? The things that we don't take the time to really dig into. The first thing you can do is if you hear anything from here, even this pulpit, but any pulpit, online, reading the book, if you hear something and you're like, I wonder about that, compare it to Jesus. Would Jesus say that? Would he say it like that? Do you, hear, do you hear where I'm going with this? It's really important to do because it's so easy to go, well, so-and-so whom I follow for 20 years and he's a man of God said, but compare it to Jesus. Because we don't follow men, we follow Jesus. Can I get one amen this morning? Amen. You can type it in the comments online. But we follow Jesus. And so that was a big shift in my thinking to go, okay, well, maybe, maybe what that person said isn't right. And here's the thing. 
We're not here to criticize anyone's doctrine or theology. We're all on a journey. And see, that, that's one of the biggest things. You know, I, I, I normally can meet, I've been so busy lately, but there's a pastor's group that meets around here. And I mean, it's every denomination you can think of. And you know how many times I've been sitting there and I didn't agree with something that was said? But never once did I leave the table going, I'm cutting off ties with that person. I want nothing to do with that person. Why is it that the church can't agree to disagree on things? I mean, obviously, if someone said, Satan is Lord, I'd say, okay, bud, let, let's talk about this. But we're talking about just, just theological differences in things. Things that, you know, I heard one guy say that there's different tiers. There's the tenets of the faith. There's that first kind of line of, okay, this is the theology that we believe. But then there's other things that fall under the category that it doesn't mean they don't follow Jesus because they believe differently in an area. And so it's important that we're able to have those conversations and even agree to disagree. So I want to take a, a look today at a common message as we, we get into this here just for the next several minutes. Doctrine manners, matters, but listen to this. Taking up our cross. How many have heard this before? Taking up our cross. So taking up our cross, is it a burden to bear or new life to live? So I want to discuss this today. Let's look in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Jesus says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? Deny himself and do what? Take up his cross and follow me. Now, how many are familiar with this scripture? We've probably heard it, I mean, quoted at least 10 times, 20, 100. Now, we're going to discuss some things about this today. And I want to look at two different interpretations of this because there's really only two. And you know what, at the end of this, we can agree to disagree, we can agree. I just want to give you a couple different ideas, and you're probably going to, you'll probably figure out which one I believe as we study, but what I want to do is I want to dig into this a little bit. If you know me at all, I like to dig into the original language and see what is it really saying here, and it helps us here in the 21st century to actually know what was being said. So again, there's only two interpretations, so let's take a look. Interpretation number one of this verse, Jesus is preaching self-denial and burden-bearing. Jesus is preaching self-denial and burden-bearing. Now, how many have heard this version of it? I preached this version of it for years. And this idea, following Christ, is all about self-denial. It's all about going without. If you're not, for instance, let's say in the habit of, you know, daily denying your appetites and desires, you're not a real Christian. Or we could at least say this, you're not a true follower or disciple of Jesus Christ. I preached this stuff years ago. The more that you deny your needs and your wants and desires, the holier you'll be. This is kind of the idea of this. Now, again, if you believe this, that's okay. I'm not coming against anyone. We're going to dig into this and see and try to find out today if we know what Jesus is really saying. So, again, if you fast and pray and, you know what, you be on your best behavior, then you'll be just like Jesus. And listen, I'm not preaching against people who are trying to live right. People who are trying to live a good life following Jesus. Not at all. And, and, you know, here's the thing. For me, even, I've been there. I've done that. As some would say, I have the t-shirt. I probably have like 12 t-shirts in my, in my drawer at home. Ask my wife. She's like, can you organize that a little better, please? But I've been there, so I understand this idea. I mean, for me, it was classes and volunteering and men's groups and, and books and Bible reading and prayer and curriculum and small groups and large groups. Listen, I've done it all, and I've done it all with good intentions and for the right reasons. Can you hear me this morning? I think for a majority of people who live this type of life, they're all doing it with really good intentions. And let me add to that by saying that you know, it definitely will, at least in the beginning, it will lead to a better looking life. I mean, practicing prayer and fasting and good behavior aren't necessarily bad things to do. But what I found in my own life, and I'm speaking for myself, is that at some point in time, you eventually face burnout. Because at least for me, I was trying to do this by my own self-effort. I was trying to measure myself by how much I did instead of measuring myself by how much Jesus has already done. And there's a big difference in how we see these things. But the key thing that we're talking about today, as we're reading, is not whether or not we should practice these things. It's what is the interpretation of this idea of taking up our cross. 
And I would say this, there's a problem with the interpretation that Jesus was advocating self-denial and burden bearing. I mean, think about this, abstaining from like certain foods and not going to the movies and not listening to secular radio or anything fun. It doesn't make you righteous and holy. It might make you a little bit religious, but it doesn't make you righteous and holy. This message of self-denial is nothing more than there's this ancient practice called asceticism, and it actually was self-denial and avoiding all forms of indulgence, but they dress it up in religious clothing. What I believe is this, that you know, behavior modification is just changing what you do, but when you experience true heart change, what you do is an automatic outflow of that. So I'm all about doing the right things. Think about the letters that the Apostle Paul, for instance, writes. I mean, he's writing a letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were jacked up. I mean, this, the Corinthians were like, I heard one preacher say, like Vegas on steroids. I mean, these guys were doing some crazy stuff. But yet, in the beginning of the letter, he says, to all the saints. Well, they, they weren't acting like saints. And so the first half of most of his letters, he's telling them who they truly are. Then the second half is, so this is what your life should look like. See, sometimes we get it reversed. We tell everyone what your life should look like, so get trying really hard instead of telling them who they truly are. And once you know who you truly are, you'll know exactly what to do. I just love this idea. So again, it's a message that promotes self-righteousness and DIY religiosity. Another problem with this interpretation is it will leave you anxious and insecure. Have you ever asked yourself that question, have I denied myself enough? I mean, what is the standard then of denying? What is the standard of measuring up and doing enough? I mean, it's kind of a losing battle because, you know, for me in my life, I'm like, man, I've been, I've been reading my Bible every day for 20 minutes and I've been getting up early and praying for 15. This is awesome. You know, and then, and then you come across someone like, man, dude, I've just stepped it up. I've been doing an hour prayer a day. I've been studying for 13 hours. You're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. So now all of a sudden there's this comparison thing and you're like, what do I do? What do I do? See, it brings anxiety. It, it brings this sense of not measuring up. It makes you insecure. So then what do you do? You're like, well, I, I guess I better deny myself a little bit more just to be safe. Well, guess what? That's not good news. Jesus died and, and resurrected so that we might be free from dead and useless religion. So we've heard that bearing our cross is a true sign of faithfulness, right? If you bear your cross, it's faithfulness. But then that puts the onus on you. It's up to us to produce faithfulness. But this just isn't scriptural. You, you producing faithfulness by your own self-effort is called walking according to the flesh. But we don't always line that up. See, think about this. True faithfulness is produced by Christ in you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if you've gone here for any amount of time, I've spoken on this, but fruit, first of all, is meant to be picked and enjoyed. A tree produces fruit, and what do we do? We pick and enjoy it. I think that our fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, I think those fruit are meant to be enjoyed by those around us. It's not something we're producing, so God will be okay with us. But, but even in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this, this whole parable about the vine and the branches. And he says what? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he says, guess what? Nobody can produce anything without me. So even the fruit production doesn't come from you. Man, when I, when I learned that, I was like, okay, the pressure's off. So what do I do? He says, abide in me. And so when I stop trying to go and perform and do and somehow produce what I call frankenfruit, when I, when I decided, okay, I'm just going to abide in you, Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend time with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from you. This is what Jesus said, right? Learn from me. Walk with me. Watch how I do it. Matthew 11. I love that in the message translation. If you're facing burnout, the thing to do is to renew that relationship with Jesus because he'll show you exactly who you are and what you're supposed to do. And that's where the fruit comes from. I know I'm going off track a little bit, but I really want us to see that, again, true faithfulness is produced by Christ in you. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. So, listen, Jesus is not preaching self-denial. This is how I see it, and this is why. We're going to go to interpretation number two, and we're going to break this down here for the next several minutes, and then let you go this morning. Interpretation number two. Jesus is showing us the way to new life. 
Think about that for a minute. Jesus is showing us the way to new life. When Jesus says, follow me, I believe that he's saying the way to salvation is through him and his cross. See, think about this. The reason I believe that most Christians struggle to live the Christian life is that they don't know that they have died with Christ. Yet, if you just look at the letters of Paul, again and again and again, he says things like in Colossians 2.20, he says, you died with Christ. In Romans 6.8, he says, we died with Christ. In his letter to Corinth, he says, we died. He even says again in Romans 6.3, he says, when you were baptized or placed into Christ, you were baptized into his what? His death. This might be the single most important thing that has ever happened to you. Yet, unfortunately, many Christians are completely unaware of it. And since they don't know, listen to me, since they don't know that they have died, they are constantly trying to die. You've heard die to self theology, right? So we're trying to die over and over and over again every day when we've already died in Christ. Now, listen, don't turn off to me yet. We're going to look at some things here that's really, I hope, going to change your way of thinking. So let's talk for a minute about what Jesus didn't mean, okay? We've already have interpretation one, but here's another one that's really important I think we should see. Many people interpret the cross as some burden that we must carry in our lives, um, a strained relationship, a thankless job, a missionary in some third world country, right? I often joke about when we pray God's will, we're, we're like, I'm really trying to find God's will. And someone's like, okay, what do you hate the most? Well, I would hate to go be a missionary, you know, in a third world country. Like, that's it, right? Because you're not supposed to like what God calls you to. But how many know it's not true? He gifts you for what you're called to. Now, I have friends who are missionaries and they just like love this stuff. Like, I'll go on a missions trip, but I'm not called to be a missionary, but they are. I mean, they've, they're built for it. They're, just everything about them is like mission-minded and it's beautiful. And so we all have that place and we all have that calling. But a lot of times we see the cross as, you know, I have this strained relationship, this thank, thankless job. Uh, how about this? Uh, this physical illness was put on me by God to teach me something. It's my cross to bear. But I want us to look at this, okay? Because what happens is then we have some kind of self-pitying pride that says, you know what? I have my cross to bear. I have my cross to carry. But this is not what Jesus meant when he says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I want us to go back to the first century for just a moment. The definition of the cross to a first century Christian, Jew, Roman, anyone in that time would never be a word that is a synonym for a burden. A cross meant one thing, death. I mean, if, if Uncle Jojo was bearing a cross and someone was telling you about it, like, oh, wow, bless him. Was that his, his cross to bear in life? Like, no, he died. He bore the cross to die. Are you following me here? This is the mentality of the first century. When Jesus carried his cross up Golgotha to be crucified, no one was thinking of the cross as some kind of symbolism for a burden to carry. They're like, that dude's going to die. He's got a cross. He's going up to the hill. We know what's going to happen. I mean, for people in this time, there were roads that were lined with crosses and rotting corpses as you went down. It was Rome's way of saying, don't try and stand up against us because this is what happens. The most inhumane thing to date that anyone's come up with for a human to experience in death, the crucifixion. I believe it was the either Persians or Assyrians who came up with it, but Rome perfected it, man. They had it down to a science. How long can we make someone suffer until they finally die? Pretty sick, pretty twisted, isn't it? No one would see someone with a cross on their back and think, oh, bless him, he's just bearing his burden. No, he's going to die, going to die. So this isn't talking about bearing heavy burdens to help us walk out this life of Christianity. I mean, first of all, we know that Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. He said that my yoke is easy and my burden is light, right? In Matthew 11. But look at this here in Matthew 16. 
Looking again at 24 and 25, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Think about this. Jesus picks up his cross. He asks you to pick up your cross, so you pick up your cross. And then what's he ask you to do? Follow him. So you follow him. This verse is surely an invitation to lose one's life. Jesus was speaking of the invitation to a new life in him. And this is, listen, this is precisely what happens to those who accept the invitation. So think about this. You pick up the cross and you follow him. Where do we follow him? Where did Jesus go? Anyone? Bueller, Bueller. <laughs> to Calvary, right? And what happens at Calvary? Come on, everyone knows. What happens to Jesus at Calvary? He's crucified. So who's crucified with Christ when we follow him? Us. This is cool. What happens after the resurrection? I know we've already passed resurrection day, Easter Sunday. He's raised up. What happens to us? The scriptures tell us we're raised up with him in newness of life. And what else? We're seated with him in heavenly places. Now, this can seem a little deep. Maybe some online, first time you tuned in, first time to church. But here's a real cool thing to think about, too. When we think about seated in heavenly places, it's taking your place where you belong, I believe. But, you know, Jesus preached this message. He said, repent, which means change your mind, because he was talking to Jews. That's who he was called to, who had a different mindset of God and sacrifice and temple. He was saying, change your mind, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he looks and he points at people and says what? The kingdom of God is within you. See, so many times we're trying to come to an altar and pray a magic prayer to go to a place and get our ticket stamped later. Listen, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm all about that, man. Eternity, that's great. But what about the here and now? I mean, Jesus prayed that his disciples would stay in the earth. This is what blows my mind, that they would stay here. Why? Because he wanted us to bring the kingdom to this earth. Bring heaven to earth. Where's heaven? According to Jesus, it's within you. See, some of us just need to awaken. That's the whole, think about the letters in the gospel. It's an awakening. Even to be dead in your trespasses, dead in your sin, that word dead literally means, in the original language, to be asleep. But what happens when someone nudges you in your sleep? You wake up. So literally, the job of Jesus was to awaken us, the job of the apostles, the, our job is to awaken people to what? The kingdom and the sonship that's already there. Listen, Jesus is not going to come back and die again, folks. It's a done deal. It's a finished work. So do we believe it or not? See, in order to access or walk in the truth, you have to believe it. So just because it's there doesn't mean you're going to walk in it. Does that make sense? And so it's about awakening to that. We're trying to awaken people to sonship. That's why Paul talks so much about this orphan mentality versus sonship. It's, it's a big thing throughout, especially the New Testament. But let me ask you this. How many times did Christ pick up his cross? Once. How many times do you and I pick up our cross if we choose to follow him? Once. And you're going, man, this is crazy. Okay, so let's do this then. We're going to break this down just a little bit more before we go this morning. Let's deal with the elephant in the room because I already know some people are like, well, Luke's gospel says daily. It does. Let's read it. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, what? Daily and follow me. Now, let me say this. Daily may or may not be in the original transcripts. There's, if you, you can go online, you can search it out. Scholars still debate on whether daily was actually there or placed there later. But think about this. Even if it was, I believe that it makes the point stronger. Think about this. Every single day, we get to remind ourselves that we are a new creation in Christ. This should be a daily thing. Who am I? I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. This is who I am. This is what I'm built for, not that. See, that's when my life began to change and maybe addictions in life and, and different things I seem to stumble so much in. When I began to realize, wait, I'm not built for that. That's not who I am. That's when I began to make different decisions in those facets of my life. How about you? 
It's really a daily process of getting rid of old toxic thoughts and replacing them with the truth about who you are as a new creation in Christ. But I want us to be very clear that this is, it's still not speaking of burdens. I mean, it would never be understood that way in the first century. Can we at least agree on that? So look again at this verse in Luke, and we're going to break this down. This is, this is our breakdown right here, guys, and then we're going to go for the day. But just hang with me, because this, I really believe this is going to help you see things differently. So he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, the word after, when Jesus says, come after me, right? In other words, follow me. This word after, in the Greek, is the word apizo. It means to regard with close attention, to mimic, look at this, to be magnetically drawn after. And it comes from this root word that means to gaze at something remarkable. Now, first of all, I want us to see something here. And you know I say this a lot, but scripture should never be a threat. It should always be seen as a promise. This is what I see. There's a promise being made here, but if we're not careful, we won't catch it. In other words, Jesus, who, by the way, has grace and truth and love itself encapsulated, is so beautiful so engaging and so desirable that it causes you to be magnetically drawn after him, paying close attention to him, wanting to be like him. Isn't that awesome? But it gets better. The word follow here, when Jesus says, follow me, it's a Greek word, and it's akolotheo. It means to follow one who proceeds to join someone in a company in close companionship, get this, it literally means to walk a road together. See, Jesus spoke so much about this union that we have with him. In fact, that word united in the Greek means to be cemented together. In other words, no one's gonna pull you apart from Jesus. That's security right there. So this talks about, if we kind of put it together, this close relationship that you're magnetically drawn into because of how good Jesus is. Isn't that awesome? But it gets better. To better understand the idea of to take up, this is that big word, right? To take up the cross, we have to understand how the Greek language works. And I'm getting a little nerdy on you here, a little word nerdy, right? But for you melancholies, you know who you are. You're like, come on, give it up. The sanguines are like, is there something? Squirrel, right? But just, just tune in. This, this is awesome stuff here. And, and let me say this. There's so many different levels and dimensions to the Greek languages and tenses and, and flows and moods. So just hang with me. I want to make this really simple. It's all about imperatives. Say imperatives. There are many forms of imperative in Greek, but I want to discuss two. The first one is present imperative. The second is aorist imperative. So present and aorist. Now, now check this out. Present means an ongoing process, a continual action. So if there's a word spoken in present imperative, it's saying something that you continually do over and over again. It's something you repeat. Does that make sense? Aorist means final, over and done. Now, this word take up is the word arrow, which is also in Luke chapter 15. If you don't get a chance, search on the site for that whole idea of Jesus cutting you off the vine. It's actually the word arrow in the Greek, which means to lift you up so you can produce. Whole different message. But this word here, take up, is arrow. It means to lift up and get this. It's an aorist imperative. So we lift up your cross once and for all. Get it over and done with. Isn't that awesome? I mean, this is the verbiage that's used. This is the original language. When it says take up, it's saying, okay, so for once and for all, take up that cross, follow me, die to those old ideas and paradigms and thoughts of who you are and God is because guess what? I'm gonna resurrect you to a brand new life. Stop trying to die every single day. Now, let's finally deal with this word daily because I know you say, but it's in there. It says to die daily. And watch how we bring all this together. Now, we just learned that, that, the, that the taking up your cross here, that connection, um, that the daily cannot be connected to the cross, I should say, because the cross is a what? Over and done one-time event, right? So if the cross is a one-time event, over and done, we've seen that even with the Greek imperatives, what does this daily connect to? 
Well, in the original Greek rendering, it's actually attached to the following of Jesus. In other words, this relationship that we have with Jesus, this close companionship with grace and love and truth, this walking the road in the closest possible association with Jesus, who, by the way, is so beautiful, so engaging, and so desirable that it causes you to be magnetically drawn after him, paying close attention to him, wanting to be like him, it's a daily experience. I like that interpretation. Do you see how when we, when we pull the original language and kind of look at tenses and moods and imperatives and how that works, we go, okay, wait a second. So, so this isn't a threat. Like you better do this and you better do it every day and you better prove yourself to be good enough. No, what's it saying is, listen, I'm saying, will you follow me? Because first of all, I'm so good and I'm so desirable and I have everything that you want in life. In fact, you're magnetically drawn to me. It's my kindness that draws you to what? Repentance and mind change. Will you say yes? Will you have faith? Will you trust me? Pick up that cross, follow me to Calvary, die, be crucified with me, and then guess what? I'm gonna raise you again to newness of life. Do you want that? That's the question. But can you see it's a thing of, look at I'm so good, you can't resist this. What did Jesus say? He said, if I be lifted up, I will what? Draw all men unto me. Do you know in the original language that word draw literally means to be dragged? It's so good. That's why I love this. It says magnetically drawn. It's literally like, I can't help myself. This Jesus is so good. But here's the problem is a lot of times forgive me, don't want to offend anyone, but I don't think we're preaching the right Jesus. Because he's not desirable. People are not being magnetically drawn to the Jesus. I mean, think about it. There's over 40,000 denominations. That means there's over 40,000 versions of Jesus. And not even saying that I have it all right. But I dig really hard to try to get it as right as I can. And if I have something wrong, I'll apologize. You, how, how many have been here for five years or more? 10, 20? Have I changed at all in my theology and the way that I preached? Is that okay? <laughs> because we're learning. We're on a journey, right? And so we get the journey together and see all these new facets of things. But they're really not new. It's just we're discovering something that's always been there. But to me, when you see Jesus for who he really is, which in essence, we can say you see God for who he really is because Jesus said that he doesn't do or say anything unless he sees the Father do or say it. In fact, John, goes, he's as bold in his prologue to his gospel to say that no one has seen God. Now, a Jew hearing this would go, wait, wait, wait. Abraham saw him, Moses saw him, and they go through all this list of people, but he says no one has seen him except one. The word of God, Jesus Christ, who was dear to his heart, right? He now has explained him to us. He wasn't saying no one's ever seen him, but no one has ever seen him clearly until Jesus. Whew, that's, I almost got a Holy Ghost goosebump on that. This just, to me, it just opens everything up. So think about this, get to know Jesus, become more aware of his presence in your life, become more aware of who you are, become more aware of whose image and likeness you were made in. Begin to discover the truth of your sonship, and that includes you too, ladies, the truth of your sonship in God's family. This is true freedom. This is fulfillment. In fact, I love this translation here. It's, this is the Mirror Bible. Check this out. Luke 9.23. He then looked everyone in the eye and said to them, join me in close companionship. This is Jesus. Join me in close companionship in your daily walk. Involves, I'm sorry, joining me in close companionship in your daily walk involves perceiving my mission as fully representing you. Get over and done with any idea of self that contradicts your true I amness. Here is how you do it. Look at this. Lift up your cross once and for all by seeing it mirrored 
in mine. My cross is your cross. Isn't that awesome? Can you see this morning, this isn't about threats of what you should do. This is a promise of how good God is. Things like this have kept me following Jesus, to be honest with you. They've kept me in ministry. I think if some of the old paradigms, if I would not have let go of them, I don't know where I would be today. For one, if I was still a pastor, I would be miserable. Because I would feel like, man, there were times where I would be like, how can I get up in a pulpit and speak to people? I mean, I fought twice with my wife this week, right? I mean, we all have these things. I didn't say the right things to my kids. I didn't look at the right thing. I didn't do, we have all these different ideas. And so we're like, well, I don't measure up. So guess what? If that's the truth, then nobody should be behind a pulpit. But see, it was when I began to realize my sonship, when I began to realize that my story may be that I don't measure up and I'm not good enough, but God's story about me is you are my son. You are acceptable. You are pleasing. You are holy. That's who you are. Until you know who you are, you're not going to walk in it. It changed everything for me. And so now I would say this, that, I mean, there were so many things that I think I dealt with in life that now are just like a no-brainer. I'm like, why would I do or say that anymore? But it was all because I began to awaken to my true calling and purpose because I began to realize who I truly was. And again, I love that. When you call out the sun in someone, it changes how they see themselves. And so rather than be one who boldly approaches the throne of grace, I used to be like, I don't know how God, what he thinks about me today. But see, I no longer think that. And I think becoming a father for me years and years ago has changed that paradigm as well. To realize that I love my children so much, even on their worst day, I would not disown them. But my discipline is trying to help them realize, nope, that's not who you are as a Baranzic. That's not how Baranzic answers and acts and does life. I think that Heavenly Father is saying, that's not how my son or my daughter would act or react in life. And as he trains you out of those bad habits and, and those things that you stumble in, what happens? You begin to know who you are and you begin to walk it out differently. Does that make sense? So in conclusion, what do we do? We pick up our cross once. We follow Christ to death and resurrection, which is the beauty of it. And now we walk in new life in Christ. We also see this, that a die to self theology is not scriptural. Our old ways of thinking and doing have been crucified and done away with once and for all. And now what do we do? We walk in a new life with Christ. Now, I hear some, we're saying, what, why do I still do that or think that or say that? Because you're on a journey. That's why it's so important that we define the word salvation. You ever wonder why the apostles would say things like, to those being saved? Why would they say things like, we're to work out our salvation? It's because the meaning of salvation, and, and this is a whole different message, but sometimes it's translated healing. Sometimes it's translated deliverance because sozo or soteria, whether it's saved or salvation, it means deliverance, safety, preservation, healing, restoration. And so how many would, would say this in your life, that as you've been a follower of Jesus, there's been different facets of your life. It's taken longer than others to receive deliverance and preservation and healing and safety in everything that salvation is. And so that should take the pressure off to know, oh, so I'm on a journey. And I believe that many times God, he might just be by the Holy Spirit saying, hey, let's, let's look at this area here in your life. Let, let's work on this area in your life here. Yeah, I got all these areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, we'll get there. We'll get there. And he'll work on an area in your life and you begin to see truth. And this is the beauty of, of God. He's described as both light and love. And how many know that light will expose things? It shines things. It shows you things. But when I realize that Holy Spirit never shines on those, those places and spaces in our soul that sometimes we don't see to shame you, he just wants to show you so then he can bring healing into those areas. It's awesome. That's what a good parent does. So think about this. You've already died. Stop trying to die over and over and over again. Just accept your sonship. 
Accept that you're in the beloved. Accept that his story is the true story about who you are. I'd like to just finish up with this statement. We aren't called to bear our cross. We're called to bear his image in the earth. It's a one and done thing as far as the following, but how many know that it's a lifetime journey of changing thoughts. Remember, we're transformed by, the, transformed by the renewing of our mind. So believe that. But here's the thing. You get to bear his image in this world. Isn't that awesome? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity this morning to look into the scriptures. I pray that nothing I said was offensive today. And even if we agree to disagree, whether here or online today, that's okay. This is um, just how I see things as things change and I dig into the early languages and what we can see there. But all in all, Jesus, it's so wonderful. It's so beautiful to follow you. And it's great to know that even if there's no one else in our corner, that you always have our best interest in mind, that your discipline and your training for our life is for the best. It's training us out of things that are hurting us. Sin hurts, it stings, it stinks, it, it brings consequences. In fact, the wages of sin, not the wages of God, but the wages of sin is death. I mean, that could be literal death, it could be death to relationships or a marriage or a job or however that works if we're making wrong decisions. But you're always there to say, mm, just like you did to Cain. Cain, be aware, sin crouches at your door looking for opportunity. I believe you've been saying that to us too in situations. I pray that we would hear your voice and we would say, yes, I trust you and choose to change our mind and then go a different way. Because again, you have our best interest in mind. Say this with me, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. You're so good to us. I pray, Holy Spirit, if there's areas in my life that maybe I don't even see, that are holding me back, that are hurting me. Show me those places. And Jesus, I give you permission to come into those areas and to bring healing and to bring restoration. I truly want that for my life. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.